Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited about the founder that we have today. We're going to be learning quite a bit and also raising money very, very quickly. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Philip Johnston. Welcome to the show. Hey Alejandro, thanks so much for having me. So originally born out of the UK. So how was life growing up? Give us a walk through memory lane. <laughs> yeah, so I was born in the UK and then almost immediately moved to South Africa. So uh, my father was a diplomat, so he was posted in, in Cape Town in South Africa towards the end of the apartheid. So it, he had a fascinating career, actually. So he was basically there to um, help the British government fund black entrepreneurs who had, you know, basically, uh, I mean, he, it was at the end of the apartheid, basically. So we left in like 92, I think, which is when Nelson Mandela was, re was released from prison. So a uh, crazy time uh, to be there. And I've since been back um, and, and seen the changes. Um, but yeah, then I moved back to UK when I was about six and then was you know in, in UK schools in the countryside in a village in Surrey called Elstead uh, for most of my childhood. And then uh, went to Nottingham for undergrad in the UK to study maths. So how, how do you develop that love for math? Where is math coming from? I developed a love for math because it was the only thing that didn't require lots of memorization. <laughs> so I absolutely hated French, for example, because you had to just sit there and memorize stuff. Math, I found easy, to be honest. I never really had to study and I could just show. That was literally the reason I, I got into it is because of pure laziness. <laughs> and then then developed, a, to be honest, developed then a passion for it because, uh, you know, once you start seeing the beauty in it and the the elegance of 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 uh, the language of mathematics it starts to become super intriguing and, and pulls you in. So would you say that that was maybe like a natural path then into banking? Uh, not really, because I'd always I'd always thought as a teenager in particular that anybody that goes into finance is a boring loser, and the only people that did maths who weren't people who did maths to go into finance usually did stats. I was very clear in university that I was going to do pure math because I thought that people who did stats was too stupid to do pure math. In hindsight, I wish I'd done more stats. But <laughs> no, I really, my ambition wasn't at all to go into finance. I wanted to be an officer in the British Army, actually. So I did, in the US, they call it ROTC. In the UK, they call it UOTC. 
So I did a bunch of training during during university, and you know, I was paid by the British British Army to train throughout my time at university. And then did the selection for Sandhurst. Was almost went to Sandhurst, but then I did an internship at Goldman Sachs almost by by accident in technology, and I thought that was like software engineering. Uh, I didn't realize it was so you know heavily finance focused. And then basically, I was like, well, I could. I, and, and I spent time on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs and I realized, okay, this, this is actually super cool and interesting. These people are, you know, everyone has 10 screens, they're yelling and screaming and, you know, $10 billion a day was being traded by the guy that I was shadowing. And I just thought, okay, that's like super interesting. Maybe I'll do that for a year or two and then I can do the army thing after. So, and I realized I wasn't going to get a job in trading coming from math and Nottingham because they're quite like snooty about where they recruit from and stuff. Um, so that's when I decided to do my master's. So in this case, I mean, you've, you've, uh, been in, in, you know, around the block. I mean, you've done banking, you've done, uh, venture capital, you've done consulting. I think that you've done like the three areas that, you know, typically I find entrepreneurs that they've done either like perhaps only one of those three. And I think that that gives them a really good background to understand how to tackle problems and how to build and scale a business. So. In your case, I mean, what do you think that each one of those three different segments gave you or or armed you with in order to really be a good operator later down the line? Yeah. So the the type of finance I was doing, I spent five years doing like high frequency algo trading, which to be perfectly honest, is not particularly transferable to almost anything else, unless you're like hardcore into the software engineering side of things. And then you can use your low latency programming skills, which I wasn't really, I was more into the um, like, you know, we, we would write quite dirty research code for the algos, but I wasn't really implementing algos, but I was more on the sort of managing the algos trading side of things. So that was, to be honest, not transferable at all. But then between venture capital and consulting, venture capital is reasonably transferable because you learn a lot of, about what types of businesses are successful. Like, for example, knowing that you need a big TAM to get funded. Is just something that you intuitively know after doing VC. And then, but I would say by far the most useful skill set is the consulting skill set. And as you mentioned, it's because you, um, you know, you, you, uh, you learn how to break down problems. Um, you learn how to communicate. You should learn how to communicate just in general problem solving skills. I think is the main thing you learn from consulting. And what about from uh, venture capital on the pattern recognition side? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that ties a bit back with the TAM thing. So you start to realize over time that ideas with a low TAM don't get funded. So then <laughs> I would say also trading is helps somewhat in pattern recognition. So um, I, I did mention immediately after my undergrad, then I did a master's in mathematical finance, went to Columbia University in New York for that. That was a lot about time series analysis. And that was like hardcore statistics. And that does give you some training in pattern recognition and how to spot these spot trends i guess essentially and i mean you you did columbia then you did uh, harvard you know you've also done a stint at INSEAD. i mean it's incredible you've been in the best university so how, how do you think that that has allowed you to really build networks that you can later on leverage i wouldn't say there's a massively tangible benefit from the network there, there definitely is a huge huge advantage from from the network i don't think it's like it's never like got me a job, for example, or um, got me funding. But what it does do, I think there's a few advantages. Number one is 
I usually have some friend in connection with somebody. So if I'm pitching to a VC, uh, you know, I'm, there's like one degree of separation. So they can, on my LinkedIn, we'll usually have 30 friends overlap and they can then background check me through all these friends in the network. So that's helpful. Uh, but it's very rare that I pitch to somebody that I was in business school with, for example. Or, uh, but the other thing that's, I think, good about having a network of people who are generally like extremely ambitious and well-placed. So, so like, for example, I have one friend who um, founded a unicorn two years after graduating from Wharton. And seeing this dude who just found a unicorn made me sort of think, well, why didn't I found a unicorn? <laughs> if this guy <laughs> found a unicorn, then I could found a unicorn. Um, right. I think that is quite powerful like motivator i also coincidentally have a have an identical twin brother who has an almost identical background and career path you know same universities same consulting banking this types of things um and he's founded this exact same company that i founded in southeast asia called una brands um and so now it's like a race to see who can <laughs> who can get to unicorn first between me and my twin brother so similar effect from the from the network to the business school and and in your guys' case, I mean, in the in, in your particular case, I mean, you did the the masters in Wharton, and and typically when you go to Wharton and you see other folks, you perhaps you know like have they do like the final project, maybe it's like building the business plan of a company or whatever that is. Why you know seeing all these you know classmates that were going at it and 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 starting their own companies, why didn't you choose that path and and you decided to continue in corporate? Doing McKinsey, yeah, it's a good question, and I did think about it when I was at when I was uh, in doing my MBA. I think so. I it goes back to pattern recognition. <laughs> so I spent an enormous amount of time reading the Wikipedia bios of unicorn founders, and it just kept coming up and up again and again that all these McKin ex McKinsey people had founded unicorns. And then I started googling, you know, which companies produce the most unicorn founders, and so by far the highest number is Google, but by far the highest number per employee to McKinsey. And I was like, I was just thinking about it. I was like, well, it could be correlation, not causation, but it also could be causation. So I'd rather, for the, for the sake of two years, I'd rather go to McKinsey, find out if it is correlation or causation, uh, and then found. And it turns out, to be honest, that the network was extremely helpful for fundraising. And the skills that you get do actually, I think, prepare you for entrepreneurship pretty well. So then, Opontia, in this case, Opontia, I mean, how, how did it come to you? I mean, what was that process of, of the idea popping up and, and you thinking about it and then you saying, hey, you know what? I think maybe this has legs. Maybe I should give my notice. I've been reading about this, uh, like, at the end of 2020. I'd, I'd actually been staffed on a project at McKinsey for all of the big retailers in the Middle East immediately wanted to move into e-commerce because of COVID and there was no footfall in their stores anymore. So we created this like McKinsey e-commerce war room, which was like very rapidly assessing the ability for retailers to move online. Um, and throughout that, I'd read this article in the FT, um, which had basically uh, was saying Thrasio and all these other big uh, e-commerce aggregators in the US were raising tons of cash and were becoming very profitable quickly. And then I was put in touch with or, or, or got in touch with a VC fund in Berlin, and they were actually looking to fund the model anyway. So they basically, I I'd spoke to them, the first time I spoke to them, it was the only VC I really spoke to. The first time I spoke to them was on a Friday. They said, take, we don't know if there's a market for this in the Middle East. So take the weekend, put together a market sizing, do a deck, do a model, 
we'll have a call on Monday. And if we like it, then we'll back, then we'll back it. So I did everything. <laughs> I had a mad scramble over the weekend and then, and then pitched it to them on Monday and they, they backed it. Um, and then they were like, well, you need an e-commerce person because you know the finance side of things, but you never run e-commerce brands. And so they put me in touch with my co-founder, Manfred. Um, and then a week later, I'd resigned from McKinsey. We had secured funding from three more VCs and we were, you know, we were off to the races. That's incredible. So literally you, when you gave your notice, you knew that you had funding coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's and it was $4 amazing. million dollars for a seed round, which in the Middle East is, or three, no, $3.6 million for a week long fundraise <laughs> on an idea is <laughs> like pretty absurd. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And all, all, all these partners, I would say all this, the main McKin the main partner of the VC fund is ex McKinsey. And so, and they generally back ex McKinsey people. So that's where I would say that then became extremely helpful. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. For the people that are listening to really get it, what is the business model of Opontia? How, how do you guys make money? Business model of Opontia is to buy and grow e-commerce brands. So we realized basically there's a funding gap in the Middle East where entrepreneurs have, they've you know, lots of people create these e-commerce brands. So I don't mean platforms like Amazon and Noon. I mean, um, maybe they import kitchenware from China. They've put a bit of a brand on it. So I might call it Phil's Pots and Pans. And then you start selling it through e-commerce channels. So either on your own website or through marketplaces like Amazon. And, you know, maybe you're doing a $100,000 a month in profit. And you, you've now built this thing to a point where to scale it any further, you'd need to do a whole bunch of stuff that you don't really want to have to do, like optimizing warehousing and sourcing and logistics and automating your pricing. Uh, pay-per-click advertising and all this like annoying things that founders and people who are brand creators don't necessarily love doing. So what we do is we buy their brand outright and then we scale as fast as possible using all of our capabilities, which is all of this e-commerce stuff, you know, logistics, sourcing, pricing, branding. And then we give the founder some share in that growth in profit over the following couple of years. So it's a, it's a very attractive proposition to many founders. And, and we are, you know, we're a very seller-friendly firm. So we try and 
a common change of the terms to fit the needs of the sellers um, or the brand founders. Yeah. And going back to the last uh, point that you were alluded to, I mean, on the on the funding side, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Forty-six million dollars, including a twenty-five million dollar debt facility. So, in December, we raised seventeen million dollar Series A of equity, and then in in February, we closed a twenty-five million dollar debt facility. What, what what is that process like of 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 really finding those companies and I mean what 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 are the sweet spot of companies and and what how do you build because typically the acquisition process is painful it's all about the integration so how how do you guys go about thinking about that integration plugging it in and and then you know having those companies under your umbrella in a way that is efficient and effective yeah so in terms of how we find brands so it's a very pretty manual process so we start with five hundred thousand leads. Uh, and then we have a team of you know people and freelancers and others that go through these leads essentially to identify uh, potential fits. Then we have a team of BD people who call them and you know find out if they're interested in selling um, and negotiate with them. And then uh, once we've bought them, then you, then it comes to the integration side of things. Um, and so it's really about trying to standardize everything as much as possible. So we don't have you know one warehouse per brand. We try and have central a centralized warehouse. For each brand um this is where you know we've hired a bunch of people from the platforms like amazon to build out our operations and brand management infrastructure and out of all places why did you start the business there in in africa i mean what's what why you know i mean you were very familiar with the u.s market and all of that stuff so so why 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 over there well, I wasn't that familiar with the U.S. market, to be honest. So I was based in Dubai. Was when I was at McKinsey, I was based in Dubai, in the Middle East. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And so we just we just founded it where where, where my co-founder and I were living, to be honest. So the biggest e- e-commerce markets in Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa are Poland, Turkey, Saudi, and the UAE. And we've now expanded. We have offices in Warsaw, Istanbul, uh, Riyadh, and Dubai. And so, yeah, it's it's ba- it's a function of. We don't want to do Western Europe like Germany, France, UK, because there's 50 million e-commerce aggregators trying to do the same thing. Our edge is to have an extremely strong operational ground game in each of the countries that we operate in. And that's what makes it difficult for competitors to come in because they haven't built the operational infrastructure to be able to plug their brands in here. And in terms of the of the culture, right, when you're like buying all these different companies, I mean, obviously you want to have maybe the founder, you know, to stick around or the key employees to to help with the integration, I guess. How do you go about the culture so that you're able to not have like a spaghetti mix of a culture? So far, that hasn't been an issue because all of the brands we've bought have just been one founder or maybe two founders and they leave, you know, they're looking for an exit. So they're looking to maybe create a new brand or do something else. And so when we take over the brand, you know, they stay as a as a consultant for a couple of months and they help us with the integration. But after that, you know, we're running the brand fully from end to end. So, so far, we haven't had to do that, deal with that. As we grow, um, that, that will definitely be something to consider is how we do this cultural integration. Because we may buy brands, for example, have 10 employees, and then we would need to integrate them uh, culturally as well. And in terms of uh, size, I mean, anything that you can share with us, you know, number of employees or anything to give the folks that are listening, you know, a scope of, of the operation of Opontia? Yeah. So um, we started just over a year ago. We're now, as I mentioned, in the four countries, uh, we've got 80 employees. Uh, we've brought we've brought eight brands, uh, three of which were last month, two of which are coming next month. Uh, two more will come next month. 
And yeah, it's just about buying and scaling as fast as possible now. And in terms of the of the future and and you know when you when you grow and you scale, I mean it's it's all about having a proper vision in place. So let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight and, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Oponti has fully realized, what does that world look like? That world looks like a a house of, of brands that people in our regions love. And so we are massively heavily focused on the whole um, you know, on the, the the focus on the customer part of this story. So we invest heavily in, in uh, customer service teams. We have a extremely strong product development and brand management teams who are really trying to, you know, they go through every review and find out what the people not like about this product. How can we change it for the better? And so, and then, you know, just as to have as broad an impact as we can within our region. So uh, we're, we're looking to expand within the not too distant future to the rest of Eastern Europe. So particularly Romania, Czech Republic, maybe to the Nordics, starting with Sweden, Denmark, uh, also then in our regions, Pakistan, Egypt, Nigeria, and then South Africa and Kenya would be the next markets. But it's really about the focus on the customer's interaction with the Pontia brands. We're trying to create like an Pontia standard, uh, which really elevates e-commerce in, in the Middle East and, and, uh, and Europe. And when you're dealing with not so uh, developed uh, countries, right, like, uh, like you were mentioning there in Africa, what are the typical challenges that, that you encounter uh, as part of the operations? Yeah, I mean, a, a big challenge in any developing economy is last mile delivery and payments with last mile delivery. So it's, it's a ton of you know, cash on delivery uh, and no address in most places. So you're really, uh, you know, there's, there's innovative solutions like what three words and a few others. But though, I'd say those are the two common challenges across most developing countries is last mile delivery and payment on delivery. And and you were alluding to really being able to listen to the customer, be able to see what's 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 working, what's not working. I think that in this case, what really comes to mind is there's one word that keeps popping up for me out of the conversation that is listening. Mm-hmm. How how important, you know, would you say listening is? You know, whether you apply it to customers, to investors, or to also employees. I'm glad you I'm glad you picked up on that because that's definitely one of our core principles and values when we're when we're thinking about brand management and and growing brands is listening to customers. And that comes through our customer service. So we have, you know, 10 people on phones. It comes through um, the reviews. And one of the the most beautiful thing about e-commerce is if somebody hates a product, you're going to know about it immediately. It's not like traditional retail where you you might not ever find out if the customer hates the product. Um, And that's, but it's extremely valuable information. You know, if you're willing to really listen and act, then it's extremely valuable information because it means we can make a better product, uh, serve our customers better, basically. So yeah, customers are the most important people to listen to by, by far. Of course, you know, super important to listen to our employees and and also to our investors. And in 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 this case, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you is, as you are now thinking about, you know, the the future, you know, the the you know seeing where we're coming from and being able to reflect to I mean how do you think that perhaps COVID you know has has changed for for the good or I mean I, I would say it's for the good not for the bad uh, the way that people really are engaging nowadays with e-commerce and the way that e-commerce is perceived in the society that we live in. Yeah, I mean it obviously massively accelerated the advent of. Uh, 
uh, e-commerce, you know, being used by all demographics in society, for example, um, I think, you know, it was the case that e-commerce was used by young people. Now it's all demographics in society, very heavily, uh, heavy e-commerce users. I think what surprised a lot of people is there was this big bump up, you know, in the start of 2020. And I think everybody was expecting, okay, this is the, the COVID bump and the, the multiples of people were paying for businesses would price in the COVID bump that was going to revert. And then it just didn't revert. <laughs> the COVID bump stayed up. So people carried on just buying as much stuff as they were, as they were buying pre, you know, uh, they didn't go back to their pre-COVID levels of e-commerce use. They just stayed buying stuff on e-commerce. And then that's still, you know, trending upwards. Um, so it's, it's definitely hugely accelerated the advent of e-commerce. And on, the, on that note too, I mean, what kind of trends have you seen on the, on the advertising side? Because obviously for e-commerce businesses, it's all about distribution and really nailing it on the customer acquisition side. And, and now we've seen like multiple changes being introduced now on iOS with the, with the way that people are able to advertise, you know, and, and use Facebook or Instagram and on their phones and things like that. So, so what kind of trends are you seeing too on the, on the advertising side of things? Yeah, I mean, the marketing is the biggest piece for us to crack when it comes to buying D2C brands, um, like direct-to-consumer, so own website brands. And it's uh, it's a struggle, to be honest, sometimes. Um, but I, I think one of the biggest trends in, in Saudi in particular is uh, the use of, of influencers. I mean, everywhere, but particularly in Saudi, the use of influencers is like way ahead of, uh, of other places. And they, yeah, they're all using, all using Snapchat rather than Instagram and TikTok. Actually, no, slightly to go. So, yeah, I'd say that is a trend that will continue as well as, um, you know, live streaming. And particularly, you've seen from China that live streaming can be massive. And I think places like Saudi, it's right for it to be massive. Very cool. Now, imagine that I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. You know, maybe like a, right at that moment where you were in McKinsey and, and kind of like giving some thought about starting something of your own. If you had that opportunity of having a sit down, you know, next to that younger Philip and giving that younger Philip one piece of advice before launching Oponte in this case, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I mean, I would, I would 100% tell myself to do it. I don't regret a single second of it. Um, I mean, we made some probably strategic mistakes in the early days. Like, you know, we picked the wrong partners and the wrong vendors and these types of things. And maybe we could have gone into Poland faster. and. But I don't think any of it is like catastrophic and, you know, you couldn't really have known without it. I don't know. It's, I think I would just say sort of buckle in because it's going to be a, a wild ride. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it is a, it is a an absolutely insane wild ride. I do recommend it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Now, for the people that are listening here, Philip, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so anybody wants to mess me on LinkedIn, feel free. Amazing. Well, Philip, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. Great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.